Open God's holy word to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 28. The word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations about Egypt. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses, mount, O horsemen, take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares Yahweh. The swift cannot flee away, nor their warrior escape in the north by the river Euphrates. They have stumbled and fallen. Who is this rising like the Nile? Like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy, the, destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord Yahweh of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord Yahweh of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard your shame, and the earth is full of your cry. For warrior has stumbled against warrior. They have both fallen together. The word that Yahweh spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. Declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdol, proclaim in Memphis and Tophanes, say, stand ready and be prepared, for the sword shall devour around you. Why are your mighty ones face down? They do not stand, because Yahweh thrusts them down. He made many stumble, and they fell, and they said to one another, Arise and let us go back to our own people and to the land of our birth, because of the sword of the oppressor. Call the name of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, noisy one who lets the hour go by. As I live, declares the king, whose name is Yahweh of hosts, like Tabor among the mountains and like Carmel by the sea, shall one come. Prepare yourselves, baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt, for Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away, for her enemies march in force and come against her with axes. Like those who fell trees, they shall cut down her forest, declares Yahweh. Though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts, they are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of a people from the north. 
Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel said, Behold, I am bringing punishment on Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares Yahweh. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us when our hearts betray a kind of, in our our lives, our minds, our thoughts, whenever we as persons forgive us, Lord, whenever we're more rooted to this world than to your kingdom. Whenever we behave more so as citizens of the nations, this nation, than citizens of the kingdom. And help us to, as Paul had a zeal for his own countrymen, to mourn and weep over their souls. Yes. And to have a a, a proper patriotism and and pride were due, but to realize the doom of every earthly nation and the great promise to those who are citizens of the kingdom. And so, waken us, sober us, remind us of these truths now as we look to your word. In Christ's name, we ask this. Amen. Yahweh called Jeremiah to his ministry, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. In what way is Jeremiah a prophet to the nations? Yahweh shortly went on to explain. Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Up to this point, 45 of Jeremiah's 52 chapters, as we have them divided for us, 45 of those 52 chapters have largely concerned Judah. The nations have been dealt with therein, not infrequently, but not directly either. Whenever they're discussed, it's always indirectly as, a, um, as to how it has reference to deal with Judah, mostly. 
But now we come to chapters 46 through 51, which form a distinct section within Jeremiah known as the oracles against the nations. In the Septuagint, and that is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it was the version of Scripture that the New Testament authors often quoted from. You'll often, if you're reading along and you wonder what LXX represents in some kind of Christian literature, that's a reference to this translation, the Septuagint. And in that translation, chapters 46 through 51 are in a different place than you have them as they come to us from the Hebrew Scriptures represented in in whatever translation you're probably holding this morning. Instead of being chapters 46 through 51... They follow chapter 25 and verse 13. And they conclude with chapter 25, verses 15 through 38. Why are they there? Listen to chapter 25 and verse 13. I will bring upon that land, referencing Babylon, all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. So there's a book, and that book is a book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. There are several subsections within Jeremiah that we've encountered, but at least three times there are distinct books that are mentioned. There there were these portions of Jeremiah that were published independently and stood alone in some manner. Jeremiah 30 through 33 is known as the book of consolation. It's the most heartening of all these, loaded with promises concerning the redemption of Israel. Chapter 30, verses 1 through 3, explain the nature of that book. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says Yahweh, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. The context there makes clear that write in the book all the words. The words are specifically all the words of hope, all the words of consolation. Jeremiah 36.2 mentions a very different collection of words. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, Jeremiah was instructed to take a scroll and write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the last days of Josiah until today. The specific prophecies that made up that book are harder to identify, but it seems apparent that they were made up of a large portion of what we have in the oracles against the nations. Write on it all the words that I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations. So it included the oracles against the nations to some extent, but also those prophecies against Israel and Judah. So largely the material we covered in chapters 1 through 26 would have been involved here. In summary, by and large, chapters 30 through 33 then are a four-book, most concerning Judah, and this book mentioned in chapter 36 is an against book. You've got a four-book, and you've got an against book, and largely they both center on 
Judah and Israel. But now we come to the oracles against the nation. So verse 1 is the heading for these chapters. The word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And then you have a chapter title, verse 2, about Egypt. And then you have a section heading concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho. Now, no doubt this collection was added to whenever Jeremiah was finally uh, put together. So that you shouldn't be troubled whenever you see that Well, there are prophecies within the book of the oracles against the nations as we have it now that date from a later period than whenever Jeremiah was told to first publish these. Well, the final version has the additional material added in. The Hebrew text in dealing with these nations proceeds from west to east. It begins with Egypt and it ends with Babylon. So you can see something of the masterful organization of this. People that think Jeremiah is put together haphazardly just fail to see the intricacy of what's involved. Our historical narrative left off with the people of God going to Egypt in self-reliance rather than seeking refuge in the Lord and obeying His word. And they're promised they're going to be destroyed in Egypt. And what's been paused is any mention of what's happening to the people of God in Babylon. And now you go from the oracles against the nations, beginning with Egypt and working your way towards Babylon. Now, in this chapter, we have two long poems and one short poem. Both of the long poems concern Egypt, but there are different settings and occasions for those. And then the short poem concerning Judah. So for the first one, The first part of verse 2 gives you the subject for the whole chapter about Egypt. And then the first poem, you have this section heading. Concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So Pharaoh Necho's army is at Carchemish, which is far north of Egypt, on the other side of Judah, where the kingdom of Israel was. Further north, along the river Euphrates, you come to the strategic location, Carchemish. What is Pharaoh doing so far north? Assyria was the most recent dominant world power, but she is now on the wane. Two new superpowers are rising. Babylon, who's been steadily chipping away at the last vestiges of Assyrian strength. And Egypt, who's enjoying something of a resurgence. So it's in question, who's going to be top dog? And things are now being set for the decisive, determining factor to happen around Carchemish. You can see why Pharaoh Necho would head north to try to aid Assyria against Babylon, because Assyria functions as a buffer between the two. And so that's what Pharaoh Necho does. He's heading north initially to aid Assyria before she's totally wiped out. And in route is whenever 
Pharaoh Necho encounters King Josiah. And he tells Josiah, step aside, my beef's not with you. And Josiah insists and is killed. And so for around four years, Pharaoh Necho has as his base of operations this city of Carchemish. So this battle that would happen there in 605 BC would be critical in shaping world history. Who would come out on top? And this prophecy that we have is very peculiar in how it immerses us into the into uh, war preparations again and again. We're we're observers. We're not even observers. We we become the army itself. We're involved as these things come by. And it opens up with these battle orders, this call to arms, verses 3 through 4. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses. Mount a horseman. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears. Put on your armor. Is this the Babylonian army or is it the Egyptian army? Where do we find ourselves? There are two parallels within this chapter, two similar situations that I think make this clear. The first comes in verse 9. You again have these battle orders. Advance, O horses, rage, O warriors. But then the mercenaries that have been hired make clear which army we're dealing with. Men of Cush and Put, men of Lud. These are mercenaries that the Egyptians would have hired in this battle. And then again we have battle orders in verse 14. Stand ready. Be prepared. It's made plain though where these sound forth from. Declare in Egypt. Proclaim in Migdal. Proclaim in Memphis and Tophany. So again we're dealing with Egypt. And then further we found ourselves with verse 14 in the second poem. And notice that the second poem again opens with battle orders. And then is followed by a statement of surprise. Why are your mighty ones face down? Which is just what we see in chapter 46. Take your stations with your helmets, polish your spears, put on your armor. Then verse 5, what, why have I seen it? So you have battle orders followed by the statement of surprise in both instances. We find ourselves within the Egyptian army. Who is speaking? Well, no doubt a large number of Egyptian commanders. But... At the top, I believe, is Pharaoh Necho himself. You're immersed into this Egyptian army, and so try to hear all the noise, all the, all the getting ready for battle, and then hear the cacophony of commands that are ushering forward in these instances. And at the top of all these commanders is Pharaoh Necho, whose nickname is... Noisy one, you see? From the din of these war orders, we turn to surprise in verse 5. Why have I seen it? So the personified commander, whose voice we've taken here, is astonished. The army is in retreat. The warriors beaten down, they flee in haste as terror envelops them on every side so they cannot escape, verses 5 through 6. Why are they so shocked? 
couple of verses 5 and 6 take us back in time to bring us back forward to this moment so we have a fuller picture of what's developed. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, rather. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. The Nile is resurging. Egypt is rising again. And her ambitions? To cover the earth. I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy the cities and their inhabitants. So here, battle orders are given anew um, as she prepares to advance. Advance, O horses, rage, O chariots, let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put who handle the shield and, and so forth. Why is Egypt in Carchemish? Because she wants to spread, she wants to conquer, she wants to dominate, and Babylon is a threat. And she, she brings these skilled mercenaries with her for this offensive. And, and note that this is the one offensive element that we find in this text. Like, back up in history, and she has this offensive object, objective to spread, to surge, to conquer. But every instance after that, the, the opening battle commands, you see how they're given in defensive response. The battle happens at Carchemish on her territory. It's... Babylon who's taken the offensive. And and the next instance, the same thing. We're in Egypt. And proclamation is being made again. Get ready for the defense against Babylon. But even so, at this point, where she's surging forward, expanding, she's reached up into Carchemish, all all her mercenaries that she's hired, all of this adds up to not the day of Egypt's victory, but of Yahweh's vengeance. That day, verse 10, is the day of the Lord Yahweh of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. What is God taking vengeance for? Jeremiah's not unique among the prophets in having a section dealing with the nations. Judgment against the nations. You'll find the same thing in Isaiah. You'll find the same thing in Ezekiel. In fact, you'll find whole books. Obadiah, um, Nahum. Whole books dedicated to judgments of specific nations there. But what makes Jeremiah's oracle against the nations unique is, unlike those others, he doesn't tease out their sins. For the most part. He just says, You're going to be judged and speaks of the judgment. Isaiah, you go to Isaiah and he will tease out at large the sins of the nations that have brought God's judgment upon them. The closest we get to that in the oracles against the nations are the pride of Moab, which is elaborated on a bit, and just briefly the pride of Babylon. That's as as much as you get. Is this then punishment, as some have speculated, for Pharaoh Necho having slain Josiah? You may say, well, Josiah did ask for it. Yes, but remember how God has used Babylon to judge Judah, and then he said he's going to judge Babylon for what she did to Judah. And in the same way, I think very much, he's using Egypt and then judging Egypt for what she did to his people. But I think 
it's not simply Josiah. There's more involved. When you look at the nations that are involved throughout this book, they're all neighbors to Israel, Judah. In chapter 12 and verse 14, you might recall that God said, well, thus says Yahweh, concerning all my evil neighbors who touch my heritage, that I've given my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them up. From their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. Why is Jeremiah a prophet to the nations so that those nations might be plucked up and destroyed? Because they have touched Yahweh's heritage. And this tells you something then of the purpose of these oracles against the nations as you have them in Jeremiah. This is how they function they speak to Israel's redemption and salvation. Saints, the fullness of our redemption will come through our God's judgment on the nations. First, Second Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Why will Jesus come Exacting vengeance on the nations because they have touched the Lord's heritage. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. On those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. These judgment sections that we're going to be dealing with in the next few weeks all speak to Judah's redemption. They speak to the saints' redemption. So whenever you encounter these sections dealing with the judgment of the wicked, don't think that, hey, now because of Jesus, those don't have anything to do with me because I've been delivered out of that. But further realize, no, because of Jesus, you have not been only delivered from that, you will be delivered fully by that judgment as it comes upon the nations. Learn this, saints. All the nations are wicked. Every one of them. None are exempt judgment. Some, because of God's grace, enjoy seasons where godly leaders are in play so that the people flourish in multiple ways, but nonetheless... Every one of them ultimately is due vengeance from God. The nations will fall. Every one of them. God's church will endure. Don't forget. We are exiles here. Our citizenship is in heaven. A number of vivid images portraying Yahweh's vengeance on Egypt then follow in verses 10 through 11. 
The sword is pictured as a devouring beast, a bloodthirsty object, satisfying its hunger, quenching its thirst with blood, verse 10. The sword image then bleeds into the next one. All this bloodshed is like a sacrifice unto Yahweh, verse 10 again. It's His wrath that's being satiated by the sacrifice of their flesh. And then she's called to go to Gilead to find balm for her wounds, verse 11. Gilead was renowned for her healing balm derived from the resins of her wooded hills. And there's a kind of double mockery in this. First, Egypt, among all these ancient nations, is renowned for her knowledge of medicine. But she's called on to go outside of herself to heal these wounds. And the place, second reason she's mocked in this, the place she's called to go to is in the territory that she's just lost in her retreat from Babylon. She's been wounded, and the place she can find healing is now in the control of the Babylonians. And this poem, the first one, closes with with Egypt crying out because of her defeat, so that the nations hear her and she is shamed before them. Verse 12. The Nile's resurgence then is due to nothing more than a flash flood. It subsides as quickly as it swells. All human glory, even that of collected man, is nothing more than the Tower of Babel doomed to fall. It will all fade. Their flow of glory... The nation's flow of glory can never surpass the ebb caused by God's judgment. They can never rise so far as to mitigate their fall. They can never hope to spread out miles in hope of only keeping even a few inches. There will be no advance, none of any human glory. So hear Yahweh's admonition from Chapter 9, verses 23 through 26 anew. Thus says Yahweh, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will punish all of those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For these nations are uncircumcised. And all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. And in light of this, resolve then like Paul to boast in nothing save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we are crucified to the world and the world to us. So, after this surge of the Nile subsides, Nebuchadnezzar does not immediately pursue a retreating Nico to wipe him out. Would have been easy to. 
But along the way, he's informed that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, has died. Nebuchadnezzar was acting as functioning king. He was the ruling king, but his father still held that title. He returns to Babylon for his father's funeral and to be uh, fully crowned, if you will. And even so, though, what this means is, you have this river imagery in the first one. The river has surged, but now it has subsided. And so next time Egypt is attacked, it will be her land that is struck. Verse 13, the word that Yahweh spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to strike the land of Egypt. We have again a series of battle commands. Stand ready, be prepared, for the sword shall devour all around you. And again, a question that transitions us to her defeat, a statement of surprise. Why are your mighty ones face down? The word that you have translated mighty ones here, strictly translated, would be bulls. And some take this to be an honorific plural. You would refer to kings and gods in the plural quite often. It's a plural of majesty. Uh, So, this is what we have whenever Yahweh is referred to as Elohim, which is in the plural, mighty ones. And so, some take this to be an honor of it, plural, for the Egyptian god Apis. The Apis bull was a manifestation, some might even say an incarnation, of the Egyptian god Ta. And so, much like we see Dagon face down before Yahweh, whenever the Ark of the Covenant was brought before him. Why is, why is Apis face down? Why are your mighty ones? And again, we'll see just as whenever God redeemed his people out of Egypt in the Exodus and humiliated their gods in that instance, so he's going to do in this judgment, as verse 25 makes clear, he's judging their gods as well. Even so, though I think there is an allusion to Apis here, I think the focus remains the army of Egypt. These, these mighty ones being her soldiers. Many stumble and they fell and they said to one another, Arise and let us go back to our own people. So the mercenaries that she's hired saying, This isn't worth it. Let's go back home. And it's now that Pharaoh Hophra is mocked. Noisy one who lets the hour go by. Or as one has paraphrased it, King Bombast, the man who missed his moment. Isaiah has a similar uh, biting statement concerning Egypt and Judah's reliance on her. Isaiah 37, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. The word that you have Rahab there is different from the name Rahab that you're familiar with in Scripture. You'll find a number of times, use your concordance or your Bible search software, search for Rahab and you'll find a number of times it's used to reference Egypt. And we're not exactly sure what that's all about, but the most likely is that it's somehow tied to the Canaanite creature, the, the serpent, this, this uh, mythical kind of creature that was a devourer of order, a bringer of chaos. The dragon, Rahab, they called it. And so, 
one has spoken of Egypt as she is in Isaiah 30 and verse 7 as being dragon do nothing. That's who God is judging at this point. And in contrast to this loud king who does nothing, Yahweh now speaks. Verse 18. He speaks of one coming like Tabor among the mountains and Carmel by the sea. These are both isolated mountains. They're they're mountains that dominate the surrounding territory. They stand high above everything else around them. And then he calls for them, in, in, in contrast to the commands that we've seen again and again throughout this text, to make ready for war, look at Yahweh's command to the Egyptians. Pack your bags. Verse 19. Again, we have a series of images that portray Egypt's destruction. And the images all speak ill of her gods as well. Verse 20, Egypt is a beautiful heifer, but a biting fly from the north, Babylon, has come upon her. She's then, her hired soldiers as well are like fattened calves, ready for the slaughter, verse 21. The third, she's like a slithering serpent trying to find cover. And then fourth, she does this because her enemy is like, combining some metaphors, is like an innumerable swarm, a plague of locust lumberjacks come to fell the forest that is Egypt. And so it is that Yahweh is bringing judgment upon Pharaoh, upon her gods, upon all who trust in her, verse 25, which, as we've seen, includes Judah. And yet this oracle against Egypt ends with a promise, verse 26. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares Yahweh. And such a promise isn't rare within the oracles against the nation either. We'll see similar promises made to Ammon, Moab, and Elam, that he will restore their fortunes. What's this about? Recall Jeremiah's calling again. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Jeremiah's calling involves not only plucking, but planting. Not only breaking down, but building up. And if we pick up where we left off in Jeremiah 12 earlier, you'll see how this comes about. Thus says Yahweh concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I've given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. So there's an odd twist is that He had plucked his people previously as judgment, but this mentions a plucking of his people that's deliverance. I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again each to his heritage and each to his land, and it shall come to pass if they, that's the nations, the evil neighbors that he's plucked up, 
in judgment. If they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as Yahweh lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares Yahweh. Do you see that Egypt's hope is Judah's hope? It's in the hope of Judah having redemption and then them somehow being included in that redemption by hearing and listening and learning that they will find redemption and hope. Isaiah uses very provocative imagery to tease this out even further. Isaiah 19, 18-25 In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to Yahweh of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to Yahweh at its border. And it will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of their oppressors, He will send them a Savior and a Defender and deliver them. And Yahweh will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. And Yahweh will strike the land of Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to Yahweh. And He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. And that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth. Whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed saying, Blessed be Egypt my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. All Israel will be saved. Let me put it this way. As Israel will be saved in the nation's judgment, so the nations will find salvation in Israel's redemption. As the nation's judgment means Israel's redemption, So Israel's redemption means the nation's salvation. And so this is why whenever Simeon comes across the babe Jesus in the temple and says that he is the consolation of Israel, that in saying so, he's also said he is the hope of the nations. So do you see, it shouldn't then be shocking to find that this oracle against Egypt ends with a promise concerning Judah and her salvation. In this chapter of commands, God only gives two. The first one being to Egypt, pack your bags. 
And the second one being to Judah, twice telling her, do not fear. Do not fear. And he gives a reason each time. Do not fear. I will save you. From far away. Do you see that discipline, punishment is assumed here? He will make an end of the nations, but he will not make an end of them. From afar, I will save you. The exiles assumed. Do not fear. One, I will save you. Do not fear. Two, I am with you. Saints. God will save. God is with us. Do not fear. How can you be certain? Hundreds of years later, a child would be born, divinely given two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. Jesus meaning, Yahweh saves. Emmanuel, God with us. Do not fear. Why? Jesus. Emmanuel. So, knowing that these oracles against the nation still stand, that they will all be judged, that every one of them is wicked, realize that His promise of redemption stands too. And that because Christ bore judgment in our stead, we need not, and we can rest knowing that His judgment only means fuller salvation for us. And so whenever you look around and you see world superpowers battling, such that it seems the very world might be flipped upside down, know that it's all part of God's plan for everything to be turned right side up in Jesus. All enemies will be put under His feet. And when that is made manifest and His judgment falls in full, everything will be made new. Whenever it seems like the earth is going to be ripped apart, that is preparation for heaven to come down. And so we will forever be with the Lord. As citizens of heaven, remember we are exiles. And though this world gives our king no homage, we know he is Lord of the earth. We need not fear. He has and He will save us. He is with us. Psalm 96, 10-13 Say among the nations, Yahweh reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it, let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before Yahweh, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Let's pray. Holy Father, I pray that this scriptural prayer 
is now resonating in all of our hearts. That we pray it in unity. And with depth. With longing. This simple prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And yet, may we not fear. More fully assured because of what's happened in the gospel of Christ. You will save us. And you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.